119, the 119th Psalm. As you may very well be a weak psalm, but first of all, let me tell you that it's besides on your large print sheets, it is also to be found this section we're going to be reading on page 832 and continuing on to 833. Uh, the 119th Psalm is the largest, uh, the longest psalm, or sometimes we could say in the Bible, 176 verses. And uh, each, uh, it's divided up into uh, 22 sections of eight verses apiece. And each of them starts, each of the sections starts with um, one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so if you want to learn the Hebrew alphabet, just go to Psalm 119. And I'm going to be reading, because it is in the scripture, I'm going to be reading that letter at the beginning uh, of our reading here as it is in the scripture text. So let's listen now to Psalm 119, verses 65 through 72. The 119th Psalm, starting in verse 65 and going to verse 72. Hear now the word of God. Teth. Thou hast dwelt, dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according to thy word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe thy commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease. I delight in thy law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Beloved people of God, we're going to be focusing on verses 71 and 72 as we look at the preciousness of God's law in these two verses, the last two of this section, the psalmist, through affliction, recognizes the preciousness of God's law. The psalmist, through affliction, recognizes the preciousness of God's law. Now, my friends, we are here today primarily to honor and worship the Lord. This is a service of public worship in which our attention is to be focused on him. At the same time, we are also incorporating into the service a remembrance of our dear brother, Larry Wayne Kerr. And I trust that we will be able to do justice to both of these purposes. So let's talk for a few minutes 
about Larry. Larry Wayne Kerr was born on August 28, 1956 in Atlanta, Georgia. He passed away on November 23, 2022 in Atlanta, Georgia. In his 66 years, he lived a colorful and in many ways a difficult life. He was a crackerjack mechanic. He was an automobile racer. He was one who fell afoul of the law and served time. He had a rough edge to him at times, but he could also be sweet. He was well respected for his honesty and telling it like it is. For the last year and a half, he was living on borrowed time. We all expected him to die in July 2021 when he was in hospice. His sister Helen had called me and asked me to go and to visit him there. Quite frankly, when my wife and I first visited him, he was not very clear. It was very difficult to converse with him. I had prayer with him, read scripture, I believe the 23rd Psalm, had prayer with him. And then about a week and a half later, Helen called me again, called me back. And, and Larry was alert. He was clear. It was wonderful. And it was during that time, actually a couple days later, that was on a Thursday, on Saturday, I believe it was, that we were able that he was able to profess his faith and join the church while on a hospice bed. He did so by Zoom, as we had a Zoom call with the elders, and he was able to profess his faith. We all expected him to die. But a couple of weeks later, he showed his courage when he got up out of his hospice bed, didn't tell me, didn't tell anyone else, I don't think, hopped on a MARTA bus and then a train, got picked up by his daughter at Westlake Station and went home. He told me he was tired of being around people who were dying. He was tired of that. He loved life. And while in prison, years before, he read through the Bible about four times which leads us to our text for today. Our text is Psalm 119, 71 and 72. I've already mentioned a little something of the structure of this psalm, the 22 sections, eight verses each. But besides that somewhat unique structure, the other thing that the 119th Psalm is known for is that it is primarily about the Word of God, especially the law, but also more broadly the Word, the statutes and ordinances, the commands and promises. And in celebrating the Word of God, this Psalm is pointing to the word of God in all of its many forms. Law, history, poetry, prophecy, promise, proclamation, and gospel. And so while not downplaying the significance of the focus on the law of God in these two verses, we also want to be able to apply it to all of God's written revelation to us. 
in a sense, law almost being a part for the whole, if you will. One aspect, one way of thinking about the word of God. But really, at least by application, we can think of the word as a whole. Even in this particular section of Psalm 119, we read of the Lord's word in verse 65. So what can be said about the preciousness of the law of God can be said of the preciousness of the word of God in general. So two major points today. The first is this, the role of affliction. The role of affliction. What is meant by affliction? What's interesting as we look at this section in context It refers to the opposition and the lies of the wicked. Look at verse 69. The proud have forged a lie against me. That's a horrible thing when people lie about you. I've been lied about. Maybe you have too. Which, by the way, also, just as an aside, means how careful we have to be when we talk about others, do we not? But nevertheless, the opposition and the lies of the wicked. That's the context. But this affliction could refer to any pain or sorrow or hardship. The Apostle Paul wrote of his thorn in the flesh. Many a time, saints undergo illness. Many a time, saints have to deal with poverty or loss of a job. Many a time, saints have had to deal with loss in relationships, whether death of a family member or a friend, or divorce, or death of a friendship. And let us not forget the the affliction of being imprisoned justly or unjustly. That's an affliction. It perhaps is especially an affliction to those, for example, who are in prison today unjustly, such as those who are behind bars for their testimony for the sake of Christ. But whatever form it may take, affliction is not fun. Nobody wants it. But do you notice what it says here in verse 71? The psalmist says, it is good, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. So why then does the psalmist speak of the goodness of affliction? Well, let me, let me give you five or six reasons for it. Number one, because it reflects the sovereign will of God who, 68, thou art good and doest good. And even back in verse 65, thou hast dealt well with thy servant. You know, when a blessing comes, we often say, God is so good. But of course, God is always good, no matter what the circumstance As the poet has said, whate'er my God ordains is right, holy his will abideth. 
And so it reflects, affliction reflects the sovereign will of God who is good. That's why it's good to start with. But secondly, it's good because it enables us to understand the horribleness of our sinful nature. The effects of sin, which include pain and suffering and ultimately death. This is not, we're not saying, oh, you suffered in a certain way and it's because of a particular sin that you committed. No. But we are all subject to the effects of sin. We live in a sin-cursed world. And so the effects are there. And we can understand, therefore, through affliction, some of the, horrible, of the horribleness of sin itself, but not just in terms of the effects but because of the symbolism of our brokenness and our filthiness before a holy God. It's a symbol of how God looks at us. Thirdly, why is there goodness to affliction? Because God uses affliction to get our attention. He uses affliction to get our attention. Number Number four. In other words, when we're when we're good, when I mean when we're blessed, what happens? We can just sort of go along and get along and so forth. But because God uses affliction to get our attention. Number four, why the goodness of affliction? Because affliction is used by God to make us more dependent. It's used by God, not only to get our attention, but then to enable us to cry out to him and to recognize the fact that, no, we really don't have our act together. And everything that we have that is a blessing comes from his hand. So we cry out to him for help. And we are enabled to know that our very life is a gift from him for only as long as he grants it. Fifthly, the goodness of affliction is seen or because, or is there, because affliction enables us to see beyond this life to life eternal. So we have all the, you know, the aches and the pains. And uh, for those of you that are young here, they, those aches and pains are coming, I can promise you, okay? Um, and sometimes in younger, in, as younger uh, people. There can be aches and pains. And someday we won't have any tears or sorrow. Sometimes we won't have, there will be a point at which we will not have any pain. We'll be delivered from all of that. And so affliction enables us to see beyond this life to life eternal. And sixthly, why the goodness of affliction because affliction teaches us as to what is actually important. And that's what we find here. What is, why is he, notice what he says. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Why? That I may learn thy statutes. That I may learn thy statutes. Now, a, a statute is that which is definite, written, prescribed, written down ahead of time. But in this psalm, there's also a focus, not just on that which is inscribed in stone, but that which is internalized, that which is engraven on fleshly hearts, 
that which is impressed upon the conscience and with the implication that the person then will act as he should, that he will actually learn it not as a hypothetical, not as something just in your mind, but in terms of your life. So we have the statutes, but notice here in this section the other things we have. Verse 66, for I believe, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe thy commandments. For I believe thy commandments. Notice verse 70. But I delight in thy law. Verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. The word pointing to all of God's written revelation. David says that affliction led to his keeping of God's word. Now, what are some of those things that would especially be learned and believed and kept? So let me say, let me first of all treat this negatively and then positively. First of all, to keep away from the horrible greasiness of sin. Verse 70, their heart is as fat as grease. That is to say, the wicked. They have a heart as fat as grease. That's kind of yucky, isn't it? Now, this fattiness, then, we're not talking about literal fat, of course. We're talking about sensual indulgence, carnal luxuries, lust, and also pride. And so, in terms of what we are to keep away from, there is this warning, if you will, by means of God's law, by means of his statutes, by means of his word, to keep away from sin. It's like horrible greasiness. But positively, it is, as we learn and as we believe and as we keep God's law, It is to honor God as he should be honored. That is also what we are taught. Listening to his word, respecting his worship, honoring his Sabbath, believing his gospel, and living for him. Now, what is being taught here in verse 71 was Larry Kerr's experience. He knew that he had been disobedient and had not been living like he should have been living the last several months of his life. He knew it. He referred to jail after he was arrested, October 20th, down in Coweta County. He referred to jail as his, quote, house of correction. He knew exactly what was going on. And he started to read through the Bible once again. This is why he really wanted reading glasses. So he could read without difficulty. This is why he wanted his own Bible, which the Luke Suttles, the 
Coweta County Jail Chaplain uh, provide it for him, but actually we believe that perhaps before that happened that Larry was able to obtain a Bible maybe through the commissary there. And so this was Larry's experience. He was able to internalize the word through this affliction. And so we see then the role of affliction. But now, secondly, we see the preciousness of the law. And that leads us then to verse 72, the preciousness of the law. Notice the nature of this law. It is the law that is proceeding from the mouth of God. And so there's a connection here with God's creative activity, like in Genesis 1, where he spoke and it came into being. As God spoke this world into existence, he also established the laws governing it. There's also a connection here. When it, it, it doesn't just say, the law is better to me. It says, the law of thy mouth is better to me. There's also a connection with the dynamic, the dynamite, the power of the Holy Spirit. Often we think of law as a very dry and static thing. But in point of fact, while it is established firm, it is also fresh and lively. Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is quick or alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is, as we talk about this law then, there is a manifestation of God's love in his law. It's from the very mouth of God to us. It shows his love for his elect as he personally blesses us. This is what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 7, is it not? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in, in uh, verse 6. In Deuteronomy 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. What's the conclusion? Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. It's from the mouth of God as part of his love for us that his law comes specifically to us. In Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, the psalmist says, he declared, God 
the Lord declares, he speaks, declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. How true it is as we look at our society today. How true it is of those who are going astray from the law of God. But we who are in Christ have the very law of God proceeding from his mouth to us. And so we see then this love in terms of the nature of this law proceeds from his mouth. But then secondly, notice the value in terms of the preciousness of it. Notice the value which the psalmist places upon this law. He says here that this law proceeding from God's mouth is better than thousands of gold and silver coins. Remember, David as a king was a rich man. Certainly Solomon was. And yet, he is saying that all that wealth is not to be compared to the law of God which God has spoken. And so it's better than all of those riches. What we have here then is a rejection of materialism and a confirmation and affirmation of spiritual blessings. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. Think of all those things which we learn from God's revelation to us. It tells us who we are, creatures made in God's image. It reveals who God is. It informs us as to the history of mankind. It speaks to us of God's love. It gives us rules for living so we know how we can please God, which at the same time will be a benefit to us in contrast to the wickedness and the wastefulness and the horribleness of what we see in our society today. God has spoken to us and given us his. It gives us rules for living. At the same time, it serves as the conviction of sin, our conscience being convicted because we see, we read the law of God, we hear the Ten Commandments, we hear what God speaks to us, and we're convicted. We know that we're sinners before a holy and a righteous God. Why is it precious? Because it points the way to salvation. Pardon of sin. My friends, we all have rap sheets demonstrating our condemnation in God's courtroom. We all have rap sheets longer than you can imagine. Yet we also have a Savior who has paid the price for those crimes against heaven. And we have the certainty of our own resurrection someday and our being in heaven forever. And so why then is it precious, the word of God? Because it provides comfort to the soul. So there are so many things, you see, that the word of God is precious. But there's another angle to this. It is also precious. 
not just because of all the things we can learn from it, all the ways by which we can be encouraged and comforted and even convicted. My friends, it is precious because you can take this truth with you into eternity. You know, death is a great leveler. We're all going to die. Everyone in this room, unless Jesus comes back first, we're all going to die. Every one of us will someday experience the coldness of death. And Larry, you know, didn't have a lot of possessions, but every person, rich or poor, will not be able to take any material possessions into the next life. My father was a preacher. One of the things he liked to refer to was a saying. Someone was speaking of a rich person and asked, how much did he leave? And the answer was, he left it all. You may be familiar with the TV show Strange Inheritance with Jamie Colby, where she uh, tells interesting stories of strange inheritances that people get and at the end of that of every episode she always would say remember you can't take it with you that's true of President Trump that's true of President Obama it's true of Bill Gates it's true of everybody you can't take it with you As a matter of fact, giving yourself over to material things is futile. It's foolish. As in the words of Psalm 49, the rich try to build themselves up and name things after themselves. What does the psalmist say? Like the beast that perish, they die. And then whose will those things be? Death is the great leveler for rich and poor alike. And no one can take any material things into the next life. But you can take the certainty and the promises of God's word with you into the grave and beyond. And that's part of the preciousness of the word of God. This preciousness of God's word was what Larry experienced in the last month of his life on earth. By his own statement, he was eating it up. His enthusiasm and desire for an interest in and love for the word of God put me to shame. Psalm 19, using another expression, another metaphor, refers weeter than honey to the lips. And that is what Larry experienced. Now let me share with you something that happened a week and a half ago. On Wednesday, November 30th, Late in the afternoon, I got a phone call out of the blue. It was from a lady. 
Moshida, who told me that her son had been a cellmate of Larry's at Rice Street, Fulton County Jail. This fellow had heard that Larry may have died, and he wanted to see if that was true. She said that she said that her son had been reading the Bible that Larry had left, had left behind. And her son wanted her to contact me as he knew that I was Larry's pastor and he gave her the contact info from what Larry had written down. I was able to confirm that Larry had indeed passed a week before. I thanked her for the phone call and said I was sure that Larry would be glad to know that her son was reading Larry's Bible. <clears throat> About 40 minutes later, I had a sudden urge to call that lady back. I had not really gotten her name, and I wanted to follow up with her. Lo and behold, when I called, she was on the phone with her son at the Fulton County Jail. And we were able to have a three-way conversation. The son shared with me how Larry had counseled him and another fellow in the jail. And then he read to me a letter that Larry had written to Miss Penny and hadn't been able to send, although we have now received the postcard. Jonathan picked it up here yesterday when he was at the building, the postcard. This letter had to, this postcard had to have been written very shortly before he died, perhaps even the same day. And here it is. Greeting, Pastor Frank and First Lady Mrs. Penny. May the grace of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ in heaven be with you all. I thank you for my glasses very much. Amen. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tiding unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to prepare liberty, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verse 1. For me and you and TJ, amen. I've never seen so many people who want to read the Bible. Happy Thanksgiving. Our Lord Jesus' love be with you. Now, my friends, this, we can say, is Larry's last will and testament. It expressed his own faith and his desire that others have it too. Larry, Larry had a rough life, but you know, it doesn't matter how you begin. 
but rather how you finish the race. Larry had one daughter, five grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren. What a legacy. To those family members and others, sisters, brothers, nieces, nephews, cousins, we at Atlanta Reformed Presbyterian Church offer our sincere condolences, as we do as well, to his friends and acquaintances. Please know that we at Atlanta Reformed Presbyterian Church also grieve. We loved him, and I am happy to say that he loved us. The message that I have for all of us here today is simple. Follow the example that Larry Wayne Kerr left for us. He delighted in the word of God and found his comfort and joy in it. And the reason why he was able to benefit from it was because that word pointed him to Jesus, his Savior. Christ is the only redeemer of God's elect, paying the price not with silver and gold, but with his precious blood. Jesus Christ not only died for Larry's sins, but rose again from the dead. Larry looked to Jesus by faith, trusting in his sacrifice at the cross and believing in his resurrection. And Larry knew that Jesus would someday raise him from the dead too. You too can have that same hope and assurance by believing in Jesus, just like Larry Wayne Kerr did. And so I call upon you to treasure the law of God and appreciate its preciousness far above thousands of fine coins of silver and of gold. Amen. We please stand for prayer. And our Father, we pray through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that thy Holy Spirit would apply this message to our hearts, bringing about conviction of sin but also comfort. Comfort in the certain knowledge of pardon for sin and in certain knowledge of the resurrection. We thank thee, our Father, that though we will die and our bodies lay in the grave, we thank thee, Father, that we will indeed rise at the last day. And so grant us comfort and peace then, for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.